Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. It can be like, it doesn't have to be as like legit. I mean, there's (laughs) definitely shit in there too that's real, but it's more fun. The person you just heard speaking was my friend and colleague, Stephanie Kelly Romano. And Stephanie was referring to reptilian conspiracy theories, which assert that reptilian humanoid aliens control Earth. As Stephanie suggested, it can be fun to talk about such theories. But for many people, myself included, the reason it's fun to discuss such a theory is because it's endorsed by such a small portion of the population. For example, a 2013 Atlantic article cited public policy polling data indicating that only 4% of Americans believed that lizard people control politics. But other conspiracy theories do enjoy more widespread support. That same Atlantic article said that 37% of Americans believe that global warming is a hoax, and a recent Washington Post article cited polling data indicating that 68% of Republicans believe the 2020 presidential election was rigged, a view that President Trump, who lost, is eager to encourage. Who tends to believe such conspiracy theories? Do Republicans do so more than Democrats? Are there gender differences? What is the character of such theories, and what can be done to minimize their popularity? These are the kinds of questions I recently discussed with Stephanie, and also my friend Joanne, each of whom studies conspiracy belief. Stephanie Kelly Romano is Associate Professor and Chair of Rhetoric, Film, and Screen Studies at Bates College, where I also teach. She holds a PhD in Communication Studies from the University of Kansas. Her publications include Trust No One, The Conspiracy Genre on American Television, published in the Southern Communication Journal, and Make America Hate Again, Donald Trump and the Birther Conspiracy, published in a special issue of the Journal of Hate Studies. Joanne Miller is Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware. She holds a PhD in Psychology from The Ohio State University, where I also studied. Her publications include Conspiracy Endorsement as Motivated Reasoning, the Moderating Roles of Political Knowledge and Trust in the American Journal of Political Science, and Gender Differences in COVID-19 Conspiracy Theory Beliefs in Politics and Gender. Stephanie and Joanne and I just spoke a few days ago, and I now share our conversation in this episode, which is titled, Rogue. So my origin story as a researcher, uh, at least generally, started when I was in graduate school. Um, I kept going to graduate school 
basically because I didn't want to get a job and I didn't know what else to do. And I was really good at school. And so I kept on that track. And then at some point in graduate school, I started watching The X-Files and I was madly in love with both David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson, wanted to be them, wanted to make out with them, whatever. Um, And as you know, in graduate school, you're incredibly busy and there is no time for fun. And so I needed to find a way to incorporate The X-Files into my scholarly work. And that is like literally where my entire career began. (laughs) I don't have nearly as fun of an origin story than that. I actually don't even have a pithy origin story. So I'll try to make it pithy. Um, Again, in graduate school, even before graduate school, I was working in uh, liberal um, fundraising, politics, canvassing. And when I got to graduate school, and it, same thing with Stephanie, I always knew that I wanted to be in school. I was good at school. That was always going to be my path. I wanted to, I was interested in studying the kinds of things that I was doing in practice on try to motivate people to become politically active. And so that's kind of where the beginnings of my research program started and trying to, to, to figure out whether the things that I was doing when I was in politics were right, were wrong, um, what could be done um, better. And then over my career, I kind of evolved into not only looking at what motivates participation, but what also um, are, are the antecedents of people's political attitudes. And conspiracy theories were kind of a, something that I stumbled into uh, because I was also interested in survey research. Um, and we can talk about that piece of it. Um, as we move forward, if you want. I definitely will want to, and I want to um, engage with the scholarship that each of you uh, has done. But first, as a kind of orienting question, I'm curious if you each have, if someone asked you, what's your favorite conspiracy theory? And it could be favorite because it's important or favorite because it's interesting. What would your answer be, Joanne, you first? So I think my favorite conspiracy theory changes regularly. Um, any conspiracy theory involving aliens or reptilian shapeshifters is fun. Uh, but from an intellectual perspective, QAnon is fascinating. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily call it a favorite uh, because I think that it's problematic in ways that reptilian conspiracy theories aren't. Uh, but it's interesting because of the ways in which it is completely impervious and, and shifts actually when you say we're shape shifting again to changing information on the ground to maintain its status um, as um, something that could really be happening. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> You are like my soulmate. Aliens are my favorite too. I love Area 51, the crash at Roswell. I mean, I literally for my honeymoon flew into Vegas, went to Area 51, went to the very large array, visited Snowflake, Arizona, and did the entire circuit of aliens. One of my graduate students was in Vegas and brought me back, and I have it someplace over here, some um, alien paraphernalia from Area 51 gift shops and stuff and for the same reason. It's amazing. I am, I, that's what my research is. I interview people who think they've been abducted. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Um, for what little it's worth, you're both making me feel uh, embarrassingly uh, unintellectual because I've been to Vegas a couple of times and I just <laughs> stayed. I just stayed on the strip and gambled, um, and I missed all the interesting stuff. So there. Once the pandemic is behind us, uh, we can all take a, we can meet up in Vegas and you can show me the places that I've been missing out on. Absolutely. The little alien is adorable. <laughs> the what? Oh, the little no. alien. Oh. Of course. <laughs> of course. There's a UFO museum in Roswell that has a UFO crashed into the side of the building. Uh, I will have to ask for a link so I can include some of these links uh, in the uh, episode uh, page. Um, but yep. but for now, I want to talk, uh, I want to think a bit with you about some of the scholarship that you've done. And one of the things that I noticed, uh, Stephanie, um, in looking at a paper that you've uh, published along with, uh, is it Catherine uh, Carew? Yes, Katie Carew was a thesis student. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, go Bates. And so uh, you wrote a paper about uh, Trump's uh, invocation of uh, the birther conspiracy and 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 the fueling um, um, of the birther conspiracy for which he was responsible. And there's a lot in the paper, but one of the things that I noticed was uh, in talking about the formal elements uh, of conspiracy rhetoric, but also stylistic ones, you noted that uh, hyperbole is often uh, characteristic uh, of uh, conspiracy rhetoric. And when I was thinking about that, I thought I could imagine that hyperbole could undermine the credibility of conspiracy theories, uh, or at least for some audiences. And so I was thinking, if that's the case, what might be some variables that might relate to that? And I thought education might be one. Uh, maybe the people who are going to actually buy into hyperbole are going to be less well-educated, but I don't actually have any data to support that. I'm probably just stereotyping people who are low in education when I do that. And, um, when I think back to my grandparents, my grandfather uh, had a ninth grade education in the uh, Jim Crow South in the 1930s uh, as a black man. So a ninth grade education then was uh, far different from a ninth grade education these days. And despite those limits on his education, he could spot bullshit a mile away. And I, I don't think that he would have been bowled over by, by hyperbole. But I wonder, uh, Stephanie, uh, if you have any thoughts on uh, for whom hyperbole might actually make uh, conspiracy rhetoric uh, more persuasive or less persuasive? Um, Joanne would probably know this better than I would. This is kind of out of my purview in the sense that I am a qualitative versus a quantitative, and I don't necessarily look at audience. I look at the actual rhetoric as it's created in order to try to understand exactly what are those kind of thematic or stylistic or formal elements that coalesce and what do they coalesce around in terms of what is the alleged evil that undermines the motive of the conspiracy? Because I think that's where I make the greatest impact in terms of my scholarship on the real world. But um, I do know, I read recently and don't remember what it was. There's some sort of correlation and relationship between people who don't have a lot of trust in government institutions and people who uh, believe in conspiracies. And in terms of hyperbole, specifically, I think that that also needs to be looked at in context. Your, your grandfather's a charming example, but it was also obviously a very different time. And now with the competition for attention that happens on the internet, that happens on TikTok, 
I didn't know this, but my students recently informed me that TikTok is evidently a great disseminator of conspiracy theories. And so they have made TikToks that are anti-conspiracy theory. But so I think the multiple places and the loudness of the cry for attention because of technology makes hyperbole not as remarkable a stylistic characteristic as you would imagine. I was going to ask Stephanie, because it seems to me that there isn't going to be much variance in that these days for the reason that you just, that, that's what popped into my head. Well, in order to see if hyperbole matters in the kind of work that I do, we need variance in hyperbole. And I, but these days I don't see it either in the types of conspiracy theories that are the ways that conspiracy theories are talked about um, for the, for the reasons that Stephanie mentioned. Yeah, I think there's probably something to be said about within the unfolding of a conspiracy narrative, the way that superlatives are used, the way that hyperbole is used, those kind of dramatic, like the the degree of drama inherent in the narrative. Um, In terms of believability, I think there's probably some sort of relationship there with education. Well, one of the things that I'm struck by in both your comments is that uh, it sounds as if as much as hyperbole captured my eye, uh, there may not be much variance these days among conspiracy theories on that dimension. Uh, Do you have a sense of other dimensions on which we see more variance uh, in conspiracy theories these days? The biggest variance that I see and the one that I think is currently most important, I totally reserve the right to change that statement further on in this interview, but um, is the degree to which conspiracy theories are labeled conspiracy theories. So for example, we have misinformation, we have disinformation, and we have conspiracy theories, right? If you believe that um, vaccines cause autism, that's a misbelief, right? That's something that's inaccurate. That's not necessarily a conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theories are when there is a nefarious motive assigned to and a rationale that gives an orientation and an overall explanation to people. And I think that's the part that's dangerous and problematic. Case in point, um, the election is rigged kind of stuff, the, the degree to which that undermines democracy. So so I think that the the mislabeling or the ubiquitous use of the words conspiracy theory is troublesome. So, and this is, this is an area where I think that maybe one of these days, Stephanie and I can put our heads together um, because I think that in, in the world, in the, sort of the research that I do on why people believe conspiracy theories, there's not as much work on what makes a conspiracy theory more likely to be believed? Like what are the characteristics of particular conspiracy theories? So I can think of a, a number of things that they vary on time horizons, how many people need to be involved in order for this to be a conspiracy theory? Who are the villains? Um, Are they international actors? Are they stereotyped actors um, that that may make a conspiracy theory more likely to be believed? And then let alone, then of course the content, is it it a government conspiracy theory? Is it a health conspiracy theory? Um, And we just don't have that much work on my side of the aisle here, um, 
in putting together the qualitative and the quantitative would be really interesting in this, in this regard. Um, so I can't spend, I mean, I, I, I can't, I could maybe spin a whole bunch of hypotheses about how, but we just don't know. Um, and even how, how a conspiracy theory has legs, right? How, you know, cause these, these, these days with the democratization of information production, you can throw anything against the internet wall and see what sticks. Um, so the question is what does stick? Um, and we just don't have a lot of information about, about that, but it's a fascinating area of study for sure. I would, can I also add, I, I would also add that, um, the way that I've been trying to think about it lately, because conspiracy theories, I mean, they're in the white house, man. But so the way I've been trying to think about them lately is the implicit versus the explicit, because narratives can be constructed either way. And so for example, I wrote a paper, the one I was supposed to present at the conference that I was going to actually get to meet Joanne, but um, I wrote a paper about Kavanaugh and specifically the Fox News coverage of the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. And while there was never an explicit conspiracy um, advanced in any narratively coherent, uh, very tight, direct way, the chirons at the bottom of the screen certainly advanced a conspiratorial reading of the entire um, reason. Um, Christine Blasey Ford was a pawn of the Democrats. Nancy Pelosi was in charge, all of these kind of things. So a conspiratorial reading made sense. That framing made sense. And I think it's that kind of implicit framing of something as a conspiracy that is particularly dangerous. And so trying to ferret out exactly what are the rhetorical elements that coalesce around that to make it hang together as a conspiracy is really important. And then to add some sort of quantitative, I don't really understand how that would work, but to add some sort of quantitative thing would obviously make it even more awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing um, Kelly Romano and Miller, or Miller and Kelly Romano uh, as a published paper uh, later. Uh, I'll, I'll beg for as an acknowledgement. <laughs> as, as an offline aside. Because it's all about you, right, Michael? Uh, what else? Well, I am the host. Uh, but <laughs> um, one of the things, Stephanie, that I saw you, you refer to in one of your papers was uh, this notion, according to uh, Zarevsky, that conspiracy arguments are self-sealing. What, is, what does that mean? Sure. Um, conspiracy arguments are self-sealing in the fact that they provide their own verification, right? Which arguably, according to William James, any faithful discourse does. But basically what that means is, um, you know, if there is no evidence of voter fraud, for example, that is simply evidence of the strength, power, and, uh, you know, sneakiness of the conspiracy itself. And so they're self-sealing in that you can't, A, you can't prove a negative, and B, any lack of evidence is actually evidence of the strength of the conspiracy. So I, as uh, I think I've mentioned each of you, um, when I first learned that well, when I first thought about conspiracy theories, um, I was tempted to, and I succumbed to this temptation, I was tempted to say, why is this worth studying? They're just crazy folks. They're just out of touch with reality. Why is it worth investigating it? Um, but what, what I'm hearing is 
these conspiracy theories can actually be quite damaging, um, say damaging to uh, uh, citizens' trust in institutions, and they uh, the self-sealing nature um, makes I would imagine makes them resistant to change, so difficult to to undermine. And so, uh, but more generally, uh, am I am is that impulse to just write off conspiracy theories is not worth studying? Uh, clearly, you're devoting time to that, each of you. So you, you clearly reject that idea. But what would you say to someone who just says, like, this is not worth what's what's why is what's the point of studying this? These are just people whom we should dismiss as uh, out of touch with reality and just try to outvote them. Why, why is that a bad response? So here's where I think Hofstetter is the bane of my existence as a conspiracy theory scholar in that labeling this as the domain of paranoids. And even though a close reading of Hofstetter says that he's not talking about paranoid in the clinical sense, um, but the conventional use of the word paranoid makes it in some sense easy to dismiss people who believe conspiracy theories as crazy, um, tinfoil hat wearing middle-aged men who live in their parents' basements uh, and therefore can be easily written off because they are crazy and also a small subset of the population. Uh, that reasoning is problematic when you start to uncover the, the, the antecedents of conspiracy belief. Um, and one of the primary antecedents is a seek for understanding, a seek for knowledge that stems in part from uncertainty, powerlessness, and um, a feeling of loss of control. Um, and so when we feel, when in particular, when a negative scary event happens and we, we all, it's a natural thing to do. We all want to explain our worlds. We all want to figure out why did this thing happen? Because if I can understand it, I can better operate in the world myself and I can control my surroundings better. I can be more effective. And so we seek out explanations. When an event is really scary or something that really causes anxiety, we really, really, really want to find an explanation. And so we are, in a sense, more open to finding anything that could make us feel more like we're in control. And so I see conspiracy theory beliefs as a extreme, and extreme maybe isn't even the right word for it, but it's stemming from a natural ordinary process um, that can lead us more to be more susceptible to these kinds of beliefs. Um, and so anyone can be, can, can, can believe a conspiracy theory if the conditions and some dispositional characteristics uh, and these things interact and we can talk about that uh, are, are right for it. So it's not just this small, crazy group of tinfoil hat wearing uh, well, it, people. It, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt, but it, it sounds yeah. as if you're, you're the, the, the motivations you're referring to. So understanding control, these are the same motivations that underlie uh, scientific uh, inquiry or inquiry more generally. We're trying to understand our world. Um, mm -hmm. um, would it be putting it unfairly to say that conspiracy theories reflect a kind of perversion of that motive? Here's where I see the difference, um, because I think that, that, that closure is a, is a different, 
so so when we're when we're seeking scientific understanding, there's to me I think there's more of an 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 open sense of inquiry mm-hmm. that we're gonna we're gonna keep exploring and keep exploring until enough evidence is built up and evaluate that evidence objectively until we have an answer. But the seeking for explanation that is driven, I think, by this kind of really powerlessness, loss of control, uncertainty is the type of seeking of explanation where you want, you're, you're, you're much more closed off, right? You want to find something quickly. You want to get an answer quickly. You want to close in on it and you want to then move on with your life, figure out how to operate in the world. And so I do think that the, those two, they stem from slightly different places. So I wouldn't call it a natural extension of general sort of scientific inquiry or a general search for understanding, but it's motivated by a different place, I think. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I was reading a thing. It was Nancy Rosenblum yes. and Russell Muirhead, and mm-hmm. they talk about the decoupling of conspiracy with theory, like conspiracy mm-hmm. theory. And I think that that's exactly what Joanne is talking about and kind of where I'm at. And I'm just beginning to kind of think about the implications to this, but like, if conspiracy is giving us those explanations that we're looking for, the orientation to life and to our world, right? Those big kind of ideological positionings. And we think of theories as the evidence and reasoning. Obviously, there's a decoupling in conspiracy theory, in contemporary conspiracy theories, because what we have is we have the cueing of a conspiracy theory with the words rigged or uh, fake news or whatever. So conspiracy is implied. But we don't have the systematic presentation and evaluation of evidence and reasoning, particularly reasoning, right? That's what I focus a lot on in that Arthur Trump thing. So, so I think that the separation of those two is what makes conspiracy theory and the closed offness um, conspiracy theories different than scientific reasoning. But then the other thing that I wanted to say that is related, and I'm still, this is, to, I'm just like, this is beginning process thought is that there's also a relationship with the other work that I do in terms of myth and belief and religion and conversion, because conspiracy theories have that same explanatory power and require that same suspension of belief in order to make that initial leap. But then for whatever reason, people believe similar to religions, similar to whatever is their guiding force in life. And so to understand um, how some of these conspiracies like QAnon, how they continue to remain alive and vital and changing and reactionary and relevant, right? a living conspiracy, if you will, or what I call a living myth in my other work, versus those conspiracies that become kind of codified and um and they become kind of some, they become objectified in a way that they can become dismissed. And then what gets glommed onto them are all of the people who, the crazies. So the reptilian conspiracy theories, for example, while they do change, they don't have that same vibrancy or vitality that QAnon does in terms of its relevance. And so it's really easy to take reptilian conspiracy theories and find a way to dismiss them and those who believe them. Whereas I would argue that autism conspiracy theories with Jenny McCarthy at the forefront, as well as the voter suppression stuff that's going on now, as well as QAnon, are these actively alive and um, changing conspiracy theories. 
I think that the reason that QAnon uh, election conspiracy theories and the like are more living uh, is because they actually serve a, a, a deeper motivation for people mm-hmm. uh, that whether it's, and, you know, with regard to the pandemic and autism. Um, so whether it's um, anxiety, powerlessness, or whether it's the belief, the, the need to confirm or uh, bolster our own worldviews, that, uh, that those conspiracy theories are more likely to adapt because the, the, the goal is still there, the need is still there. The reptilian ones I struggle with in terms of fitting that into the same motivational framework when we talk about loss of control, motivated reasoning, and and the like, because they do seem to be different in, in, in a lot of ways. I wanted to come back to the suspension of disbelief. And one of the things that we know is that religiosity, not denominations necessarily, but religiosity is positively correlated with belief in conspiracy theories or even broadly conspiratorial thinking. Um, and I've often kind of in my head played around with the idea of, of doing a kind of study because there is a suspension of disbelief that and the belie- being able to believe the unseen, the unknowing that is common um, to both religion and conspiracy beliefs. Um, and I've often kind of played around with the idea of, well, what about people who uh, really enjoy science fiction? There's a lot of suspension of disbelief that is required to really, really get transported, right? And to use another, uh, one of uh, Michael and my colleagues, uh, Melanie Green's uh, work, that that gets you into being able to be in that different world and see those different things and, and to... And so I wonder whether there are correlations between other aspects, enjoying comic books, or um, even if we could go back in time, I know we could, you know, and ask people, how, how old were you when you stopped believing in Santa Claus? Or how old were you when you stopped believing in the Easter Bunny? Um, the longer people, now we can't now, go now, 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 we're airing this as Christmas approaches. So I, 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 out of disclaimer now for, for, for parents not to actually uh, let their kids hear this. This is a hypothetical. Presuming, <laughs> yeah. let's just say that Santa Claus didn't exist. Um, and then we could ask, <laughs> but but again, there's a suspension of belief, disbelief there uh, that is obviously needed. And of course, with kids, it's, it's different. Um, but I often play around with these ideas of other ways to, to measure people's suspension, ability to suspend disbelief, um, and whether that has something to do with their, uh, you know, correlated with conspiracy beliefs. Yeah, I just want to add, I have to just add, sorry. Um, in terms of that stuff that you're talking about, Joanne, the, um, I think there's a relationship, and I don't know any of this quantitative stuff, but I think that there is a relationship between the degree to which um, these particular identities are centered in their self-concepts, right? Like, which, so for example, the autism stuff, I think, and the idea that autism's caught the, the idea that vaccines cause autism and Jenny McCarthy's kind of flame popularity when she cured her son of autism um, 
I think definitely landed hard with women because historically women had been blamed refrigerator moms had been blamed for autism and for the, for their, their children's inability to interact. And so women, I think were particularly, were in a place where that explanation was going to be so multiple, would function on multiple levels and was so central to their identity as mothers that it really mattered. And I think that we see, um, ironically, with a lot of this, people's willingness to trust and believe in an authority or an expert at the same time that there is an increasing distrust in authority and expertise, particularly around the media. And so people will believe Donald Trump, they'll believe David Ick, they'll believe... um, Alex Jones. And, and so I just think the, the desire, right. The desire to have that is significant. Well, Joanne, you've done some work on gender and conspiracy belief. Can you briefly talk about that? Yeah, I will. And I also want to just mention because your listeners won't have seen this, but when Stephanie talked about Jenny McCarthy curing her son of autism, she did use scare quotes Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, yeah. Yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we don't we don't get that in the audio. So oh, yes. Here. <laughs> Jenny McCarthy did not cure her of autism. <laughs> um, so so yes. Yeah, so I think I think you're absolutely right. And I would I would spin it a little bit. I think that it's certainly wrapped in identity. And what's wrapped in identity with the with women and belief in conspiracy theories surrounding vaccines and autism or the misinformation and whether we whether they're leveled up to a conspiracy theory is due to because of their identity as 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 women, you have a kid and everything is now out of control, right? Everything is both so fundamentally important uh, in keeping your kid alive and that any little thing, your kid gets a sniffle, it's your fault. Your kid, anything, uh, because there's this hyper sense of you are now in control of keeping this being alive and not hurt and, and safe. And so that ramps up the desire to find explanations for things that don't have ready explanations like like autism. Um, when it comes to gender and conspiracy beliefs, I recently did a paper on COVID-19 conspiracy theories and whether there was a gender component to COVID-19 conspiracy theories. And in the broader literature on conspiracy theories, we don't see much of a gender effect. Every now and then one article shows that maybe women are, another article may show that men are, but it's not central to the story. It's really like, this is a control variable and, oh, look at that. Um, But there's really no consistent gender effect. So when it comes to COVID-19 conspiracy theories, on the one hand, you'd think that women might be more likely to believe COVID-19 conspiracy theories for the same reason that they're more likely to believe the link between vaccines and autism, um, in part because COVID-19 is a, it's a virus, people get sick, women are caretakers, their kids are now at home from school, and there's all sorts of loss in control and uncertainty around the caretaking aspects of the effects of COVID. But on the other hand, you can make the alternative argument, which is that men, stereotypically the breadwinners, are also now feeling economic uncertainty 
in a way that they didn't feel before. And again, seeking out an explanation for what is this thing COVID uh, is a way to, at least in people's minds, reduce some of that uncertainty. Um, we actually did find that it was men who were more likely to believe a host of COVID-19 conspiracy theories um, than women. And that's not due to partisanship. Um, so, cause we also find that Republicans are more likely to believe COVID-19 conspiracy theories that has to do with the motivated reasoning component where, um, in the U S in particular, you've got a Republican president who's been soundly criticized for his handling of the pandemic. And so Republicans are more motivated to believe conspiracy theories that, that scapegoat and sort of let the president off the hook, um, in a sense. Um, and so we find that both Republicans and men and, um, the gender effect isn't due to partisanship, right? Because we know that, that, that women are more likely to be Democrats. Um, there is a unique component here that's related um, to, to gender. We're following up now on a project, and this is, a, this is work that I've been doing with Erin Cassace, my colleague at University of Delaware, and Christina Farhart, my former PhD student from Minnesota, who now is a professor at, um, teaches at Carleton um, College in Minnesota. Um, and another former Minnesota student, Phil Chen, one of the, if you think of lack of control when it comes to COVID, one way to think about this is there are two avenues to gain control. One is to engage in self-protective behavior, social distance, wear masks, keep yourself safe. And those are active things that you can do to gain some control. On the other hand, you could believe a conspiracy theory and get a different understanding of the virus as a way to gain control. Um, in other work that public health scholars have been doing, we know that women are more likely to engage in the self-protective behavior stuff. We know this across health domains, right? That women are more likely to uh, go to the doctor, um, seek preventative um, health for, for a variety of reasons. And so one thing that's interesting to think about is whether these are two different pathways and maybe men go the conspiracy theory route and women go the health behavior uh, route. We haven't put the two of those together in the same study. So that's what we're working on. Uh, we're working on now um, with regard to at least COVID-19 conspiracy theories. Before, before we're out of time, I want to think a bit about, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, preventative or corrective measures. And so mm. and I, I'm going to put this question first to Stephanie. If you can imagine uh, either one of my listeners or perhaps one of your students coming to you and saying, COVID-19 uh, conspiracies can be damaging. Uh, if they, for example, reduce the public's trust in a vaccine, that's a bad thing. Um, the president's uh, invocation of uh, uh, his, his false invocation of voter fraud uh, and a conspiracy there is damaging if it erodes voters' trust uh, in democratic processes. So we need to figure out how we can either prevent uh, people's endorsement of such uh, beliefs, or if the horse is out of the barn, how can we actually undermine uh, belief? Uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts, Stephanie, uh, for that student or that podcast listener that you'd be willing to share. Of course I do. Um, 
do I ever not have thoughts to share? Um, there are a couple things. First of all, Meredith Greer and I are, um, she's in the mathematics department at Bates and she and I are working on actually modeling conspiracy belief, the spread of conspiracy ideation and specifically trying to figure out depending on the level of belief and where someone is in the belief cycle, what might be some rhetorical measures to counteract. So for example, cause we know that when people already believe a conspiracy, if you include disconfirming information, it actually reinforces the conspiracy. So if you believe in UFOs and I give you an article full of experts who tell you there are new UFOs, you believe in UFOs even more. So obviously disconfirming information is not always what we want to go for, um, so I think that there are a couple different things that I try to suggest to people when they're curious about what to do, whether it's about conspiracies, fake news, mis misinformation, or just generally trying to understand the world. Um, the first thing that I always advise is get off screens, get off screens, like legit go outside, go for a walk, engage with people in your life, sit and paint a picture, legit get away from screens. I think we have way too much information available to us. And the fact that I could continually seek out information and never finish it is wonderful and also a, a curse. Um, the, another thing that I also recommend is that people read horizontally. And what I mean by that is when you're reading things on the internet, if you open something and you're reading about how um, Georgia has allowed 50,000 dead people to vote, Okay, so here's some potential information. What are we going to do? We're going we're gonna to Google that source, which means we're going to open another tab. We are going to Google the actual headline. We are going to Google the people who wrote it or whatever, but we're going to read horizontally. And so what that means is that when you're done reading your news, you should have a series of tabs open so that you're not just simply accepting whatever it is that you have. Um, I think there are specific rhetorical things to look for in terms of misinformation and fake news. And those things include the use of hyperbole in uh, headlines, right? This, this should not be a dramatic uh, presentation of information. Instead, there should seem to be a semblance of balance. Two, if you open something up on the internet and find uh, pop-up ads coming at you at a, at a new and furious rate, that is an indication this, is, this might not be a legitimate news source. Um, I will say really quickly, and, and then I'll let Joanne give her advice, but I will also say that, that since 2016, I am heartened at the different things that have happened within uh, news organizations and reporting that have worked to counter misinformation and disinformation. So when, before Donald Trump was elected, um, he was getting all kinds of free airtime. His comments and, and, and untruths were going absolutely unqualified and unchecked. Um, what we saw quickly in 2016 was the addition of, again, in the Chirons, which are super important because people remember that the chirons are shown to have actual framing effect. So the chirons, the words that are being shown actually have more influence in terms of your orientation towards the material as opposed to what you're seeing. So what we saw in 2016 was we saw, you know, this information is of yet unverified in the chiron. Um, and we saw things that kind of put a question mark on it. Obviously, in the last few years, we've seen Twitter and Facebook, Instagram and other social media sites actually taking things down, putting a block on it. 
Um, I recently, I'm, I'm going to totally out myself here, but I recently went to forward something on Twitter, like just to repost it and I hadn't read it, but it was something that I wanted to read later, which is why I was reposting it. So judgy, this Twitter. And so Twitter gave me a prompt and it said, do you want to read the article first? And so it kind of shamed me into opening it, even though I just opened it and then forwarded it. But again, it is it is at least a stop guard. There are different things that are being put in place to kind of encourage people to engage with material in a more substantive kind of way that is helpful. So on the one hand, I say engage in more significant ways. And in the other hand, I say get away from it altogether more often. So I would, so I would characterize and yes, to everything that Stephanie just said, and I would characterize most of that advice is being on the informational side of, of, of the coin. I want to talk about the motivational um, side for a minute. So there are, there are two ways to go with this. One is once someone already believes, so a friend, family member has gone down McHugh rabbit hole um, or a COVID rabbit hole. Um, and so they're already there. The kinds of logical argumentation that we might want to bring to bear to pull them out of that hole isn't likely to work. In so, very, so, so, so by interrupting them to say your self-sealing belief is not falsifiable, that's not going to persuade them? Yeah, no. Damn. No. You're part of the <laughs> liberal <laughs> agenda. Yeah, you, you know, yes, yes. Get out of your liberal ivory tower, you crazy hack. Um, so, no, it, it's not likely to work. And also, you know, say you're a freaky conspiracy theorist, get out of your conspiracy theory bubble also doesn't work. Um, so once they're there, um, there have been, there is some evidence that says that if a nonpartisan or a source provides information against it, but these days, what is a nonpartisan source? And when you're already down that hole, you've already been told to trust no one. Uh, you know, except for that, the people who believe the same things um, that you do. Uh, so already you've kind of lost that, that battle on the information side, in some sense, on the credibility side. Um, and so then it's, it's, it's a matter, I think, of addressing the, some of the psychological needs that might have given rise to the belief in the first place. Because even if I could figure out the, uh, the puzzle of the logical argument that would get you to, to not believe a cons- particular conspiracy theory, let's say I could do that. Uh, and you come back to me and say, you're right. The facts are on your side. I no longer believe this thing. If that person is still feeling uncertain, powerless, anxious, um, and, and the conspiracy theory was filling that need, there's always another conspiracy theory waiting in the wings to, to fill that need um, for that person. So you haven't gotten rid of the, the motivation that led them to the conspiracy theory in the first place. And so then I, I, I like to think about this as the analogy is to a game of whack-a-mole. Right. So you've knocked down that one. Now you've got to go knock down another one and another one. Um, And so another approach would be to, you know, if you're talking to a friend or a family member um, to ask them about sort of what's going on in their lives, you know, you know, get them to talk about the I'm spinning out of control. Right. Uh, Try to help people figure out other ways where they may gain, be able to gain 
uh, gain control, not even tackle the conspiracy theory belief itself. Now, I'm speculating here, right? There's no research that I can draw on that says, oh, these things, these things work. But in some of my COVID research, and other, other scholars have found this in other conspiracy theories as well, we know that conspiracy theories form a monological belief system, meaning they're correlated with one another. People who believe in one also tend to believe in others. And what I find is that people who are feeling uncertain, they've got tighter conspiracy theory beliefs. Uh, they're even willing to entertain contradictory conspiracy theories. So China, the, the COVID is a Chinese biological weapon, or it was accidentally released by the United States. People are willing to entertain both of those. Um, so the logic here isn't in, isn't about the conspiracy theories itself and cutting them down. It's what's going on that's making them want to glom onto all of these things. Insofar as um, uncertainty contributes to uh, susceptibility to believing uh, in conspiracy theories, perhaps generally, um, would a reasonable prediction be that in times, to shift to a macro level, that in times of economic prosperity, general belief in conspiracy theories will diminish? Stephanie, you're saying no. You don't think that's yeah. a reasonable prediction? No. She just says no. No, it's not reasonable. Nope. It's Why? very oh, unreasonable. It's Why not? fake news, Michael. Um, <laughs> it, because I, I, I think a couple things, um, and going off what Joanne was just saying as well, I think that um, the, ration, the reason people believe in conspiracies is there are tons of reasons why, right? And I think of conspiracy theories as a symptom, right? So back to the whack-a-mole thing, how do we unplug the game? Or how do we get people to get away from the game? Because you're never going to whack the moles. So, uh, and related to the identity piece as well, I think that once people start believing in conspiracies, particularly in an increasingly polarized and political world, that becomes part of their identity. Wearing a mask becomes political. Believing in anti-vax stuff becomes political. And so their identity is very entrenched in that. And so helping people to walk back from that is really difficult because it's a face-saving thing, right? Like I can't, if I destroy your belief in QAnon, I've destroyed everything about who you are and what you think. And so for me to instead approach you in some sort of compassionate way to try to get to the underlying causes and conditions, if you will, that create conspiracies is, is super important. Um, so, 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 so you don't buy my premise that economic prosperity reduces economic uncertainty and thus reduces one source of the uncertainty that could make one susceptible to endorsing conspiracy. Sure. Beliefs. One source, but there right. are so many sources. Okay. And in a lot of the work that I do, I talk about kind of the, the, the constellation around which the conspiracy works, right? Because oftentimes, like with the birther conspiracy, it's around, it's a conspiracy that kind of advances white supremacy. And so then we get into this whole notion about what is the underlying fear? Like, what is the cultural fear, right? The fear that women are responsible for their children, the fear that somehow, you know, non-white people are going to take over the world. I'm using scare quotes like crazy for your (laughs) listeners right now, by the way. I need to Uh, shift to to, to a video format, clearly. No, but so, so, so those things are really important. And what happens in conspiracies, I think, 
is that we have these truly systemic institutional fears and anxieties that are being articulated through conspiracy theories. But then their danger is that it can be, it can be re- like reduced to, well, that's how I feel, right? Oh, you're entitled to your belief and I'm entitled to mine. And so systemic inequality, oppression, problems become individualized, dismissed, and then never addressed. And so finding ways to bridge that I think is important. Well, and I, to be clear, I'm not. I'm, I'm in advancing this prediction. I'm not arguing that in times of economic prosperity, uh, conspiracy belief endorsement will be eliminated. I'm just saying, might there be some uh, uh, diminution? Um, and yes, there will be other sources that will that will lead them to persist. Uh, Joanne, you're wanting to jump in, perhaps to tell me other reasons I'm wrong. Yeah, I'm wrong. I, I would say another reason that you're wrong is that <laughs> <laughs> is that uncertainty. I've been talking a lot about uncertainty here, but it's not the only motivation. So there are, so there are ideational attitudinal motivations, motivated reasoning. Uh, so even during times of prosperity, economic prosperity, we know that say that a time of economic prosperity is, being, is, is during a, a democratic presidential administration. Uh, Republicans are much more likely to believe any sort of misinformation about the economy yeah. that, that, makes it seem like the economy is not doing as well. Uh, they're also more likely to believe conspiracy theories around, well, the bureau, the, the unemployment rate is, be, the numbers are being cooked to make this person look better. And, I'm, and, and vice versa. I don't want to say that this is only a Republican phenomenon, right? So if a Republican's president, the same thing happens on the Democrat you know, side. Um, and so uncertainty isn't the only, only motivator here. Um, and there, we haven't talked at all, and, and I know time is running um, short here, but we haven't talked about the psychological predispositions that are independent of any situational uh, factors. And there are uh, some of them as well, that regardless of situations of uncertainty uh, or ones that might activate motivated reasoning. Uh, so I like to talk about this as it seems like every age seems to be the age of conspiracy theories. <laughs> we have radio. Now there is now this is the age of conspiracy theories. We've got television. Now this is the age of conspiracy theories. And now with the internet, it's the age of conspiracy theories. Um, I don't, I don't think that there is, is strong evidence that we we're any more conspiratorial now than we've ever, we've ever been in terms of, in terms of belief. Um, but it's certainly the case that 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 context matters in who's more likely to believe at any given at any given time. Uh, in some of my work, I'm work we're we're working on um, testing a notion that was first uh, brought forth by Joe Yusinski and Joe Parent that conspiracy theories are for losers. Um, losers, sort of in scare quotes, but political losers. So people on the losing side of politics are more likely um, to believe. And this gets at that economic uh, uh, example that I, that I just gave. And so it's kind of hydraulic um, that, some, that people, some people believe conspiracy theories in one context and that reverses. And so there's kind of this um, not an overtime increase across the board, um, but a shifting in who's more likely um, to believe. We haven't spent any time in this in this discussion talking about the difference between belief and sharing, or the or the difference between belief and who's creating, you know, who's putting the conspiracy theory out there in the first place. 
Um, and we know that there is all sorts of rhetorical devices, framing devices that people can use to advance a conspiracy theory that could create uncertainty when uncertainty doesn't exist. So even again, without a broad situational sort of context of uncertainty, uh, one could create it. And that's one of the reasons why I think some conspiracies have legs is because they, they both create the uncertainty in the first place and then advance an explanation for it. That was a lot packed all in there. Yeah, that was good though. I like that. I also think, uh, I also think that the, the, uh, back to the identity piece a little bit in terms of when we think about people and their feeling of insecurity or their need to blame or their need to explain all of these things don't necessarily have to be situational, nor do they have to be real. Right. And so absolutely just because just because uh, there, there's a group of people who feel threatened, who feel maligned, um, that is absolutely. absolutely fertile ground for conspiracy theories. And trying to convince them that they're not, I don't think is the way to go. I had a lot of fun and I, and I hope you did too. Um, and I, we can I'm do here. this for another hour. <laughs> I know we could do this every week for a year. Are you serious? This is well, crazy. I, I will let Uh-oh. you, I, I, I would love to have you back uh, both uh, sometime uh, for part two. So uh, uh, that request will be coming. Yeah. Um, Georgia, man. Oh, I know. Oh yeah. We can spend a lot of time talking about election fraud. Or we could just, so, we, we didn't even do a talk- show on reptilian aliens. So that yeah. way we, it can be like, it doesn't have to be as like legit. I mean, there's <laughs> definitely shit in there too. That's real, but it's more fun. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Stephanie and Joanne for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on each of them, as well as the issues that we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will see relevant links. To provide feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, You can mention Tatter on Twitter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags, or you can post a review and or a rating at Apple Podcasts, or to offer more private feedback, you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. To offer financial support for Tatter, you can go to Patreon and sign up to become a patron, that is, a sponsor, uh, at that website. Uh, But be aware, if you are currently a student at the college where I teach, I cannot accept your financial support. But for everyone else, come on in, the water's just fine. In any case, and as always, thanks for listening, and be well.